Welcome to this new podcast in the UNSW Canberra series Navigating Uncertainty, now in its second season. I'm Dr. Christina Spittel, and today's topic is The Realities of War, Recognising and Planning for the Decisive Role of Media on the Urban Battlefield. We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, the traditional custodians of the Canberra region. UNSW Canberra acknowledges their elders past and present and that sovereignty has never been ceded. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Future Operations Research Group, or FORG, based at UNSW Canberra, and I'll be in conversation with Dr Charles Knight, who is a senior researcher in urban operations at the Futures Operations Research Group, as well as being an adjunct lecturer at Charles Sturt University. His PhD research investigated the coercive effects of repression in counterinsurgency. He's also a military practitioner with a rather unusual 40 years of military service. Welcome, Charles. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. We're glad to have you. Today, Charles is going to talk to us about the findings of a research project that he completed with Dr. Lee G of Macquarie University. They recently published these findings with the European Society for Military Ethics as a monograph, as well as presenting at their annual conference. In a nutshell, Charles is going to suggest that given a consensus ranging from the most senior officers in the American military to the International Red Cross, that future warfare is increasingly likely to be urban. There are some pretty significant risks in not preparing for it, and especially on the media aspects of urban warfare. Charles, you bring to this question your own research, but also your military background. Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about that? Okay, so I started as a regular officer of the British Army um, before then transferring to the Royal Air Force, and I had an interesting time on a Vulcan nuclear bomber squadron. I eventually failed pilot training, so I rejoined the Army as a private soldier in the parachute regiment. Um, after being recommissioned, I spent four years commanding Pakistani Baluch soldiers in the Dofar province and the Salt of Oman's army, and I subsequently soldiered in some other interesting places. I came to Australia in um, 89. I planned to join the full-time infantry, but it appears that the regular appointment board were hesitant about my unconventional, uh, some would say a slightly mercenary past. Um, uh, fortunately, I'd already passed the Australian Command Officer Selection although I was wearing a British uniform at the time. So the special operations community took me on board. And apart from serving as a reserve company and battalion commander in the Royal New South Wales Regiment, I've spent much of the subsequent two decades in special operations development branch. Um, so since I've been here in Australia, I've been advocating for preparing for urban operations. By that, I mean fighting in cities and towns. I, I wrote the uh, Australian Urban Doctrine, which are the documents that describe how it should be done. Um, and I've played quite a big part in challenging the idea that uh, urban combat was just for the special forces. Um, what got you interested in urban warfare? Um, well, my urban curiosity started back in 1981. I was a, a young officer in the Parachute uh, Regiment Reserve. It was the time of the Cold War, and the British Army's main role in life was to sit in barracks in West Germany uh, around the River Weser and with the idea of defending in case of a Soviet attack. Now, um, for political reasons... At the time, NATO didn't really train to fight in cities um, because if they'd done that, that would have signalled that they were they're intending to retreat to the urban conurbation in the middle of Germany rather than fighting on the borders. But um, the brigade that I, that I belonged to and the British Army had a parachute 
um, reserve brigade at the time, and by parachute troops were very lightly equipped. We were given a new job of uh, fighting in the city of Hildesheim. And in turn, I was given the, pro the job of designing a training program and especially to look at enemy tactics, which of course in those days meant the Warsaw Pact and therefore Soviet tactics. Um, um, and I, I noticed you grew up in the, the East. Um, uh, in the, the Fulda Gap. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the place where it was all going to go down. Um, That's right. <laughs> but um, I mean, the thing, because I um, could read a little bit of German, a lot of my research was in, from the Volksarmee material. That is the, the East German army. Um, I mean, in passing, I came to the conclusion that the Soviet doctrine was pretty sound. And if that had been applied by... Prussian officers from the East German Motor Rifle Divisions, we were going to come up against some pretty serious opponents. But, um, you know, you, as a, <laughs> I've got a long history of having unpopular views in the military. Um, so uh, on reflection, one of the things that stands out about the concepts I developed for urban fighting in 81 after um, studying historical battles was that mines and improvised explosive devices would be key to defeating a much more powerful armoured force. So this back in the 80s, we were thinking about how are we going to do it? And of course, it turns out that that's exactly how the Iraqi resistance learned to take on the coalition invaders. Um, and I guess it's one of the reassuring things there is that focused historical analysis is useful. You know, history rhymes, even if it doesn't actually repeat. Um, so I, I was very fortunate to be able to test out many of my ideas um, preparing for operations in the Omani army. Um, especially for using explosives and how to train realistically for close combat in buildings and underground. Um, and later, when I was back in the British Army, I was able to go into Beirut while the civil war was, was ongoing uh, and see what contemporary urban war actually looked like. And, and by that, I don't mean how horrible it was, because that's self-evident, but I mean the very practical stuff like measuring exactly what size of a hole a Soviet 122 millimeter shell makes in a wall and those sort of things. Because, because at that stage, we really didn't have much recent information. Um, and things like how did a, a, um, a, a General Owens force of a couple of brigades manage to keep off the Syrian army on one side and Hezbollah, Amal and the Druze and the Christian militias on, on the other. I and mean, there's some really quite interesting insights that came out from that. Mm. How did the Australian army respond to your interest in urban warfare? What was their attitude? <sighs> Well, I think the old adage about the only thing that's harder than getting a new idea into the military mind is getting an old idea out. Um, I, and this army here is, is the Australian army is highly trained and you know, really exceptional. And I've served in a number of armies. The soldiers are really, really well trained and really motivated. They do the things they do very well indeed, and they know that. So if you turn up and tell them they might not be doing it quite right, it's not really a pathway to popularity. So, so, <laughs> so, so it's taken about 30 years. Um, but I have to say also at the moment that some of the individual commanding officers of some of the units around the army have done amazing work with, in this field. And, and you know, there's some change coming in the Australian Army. And you clearly have some views about what that change should be based on your own research. Your title suggests that the media play a decisive role on the urban battlefield. Could you explain that a bit more? Well, uh, to do that, I think I'd start by quoting what General Bautista, who commanded the Philippine military in the, during the Battle of Marawi, explained to us when we visited the battlefield in 2018 he emphasised that it was a, a two-pronged fight of two equally important parts. One part was the hard kinetic killing fight, which were kind of which is very visible. 
but the other was a soft fight of information to ensure that the many disaffected Muslim factions right across the island of Mindanao didn't join the uprising. And although he didn't say it, it was the soft right that if that had been lost, would have been strategically disastrous. I mean, if that had, you know, if it got wrong, if they had all joined the insurgency, very, very different story. Um, the case study at the end of our report explains Marawi, but um, I think I'd like to, to contrast it with a genuine strategic disaster, which is the, in my view, the, the Battle of Fallujah in 2004. So after the coalition invaded Iraq um, and the, the initial instability that happened after the state had collapsed, it sort of spent itself and there was sort of some sort of semi-stability for a while. The, the city of Fallujah was not considered a particular problem. The story of how that changed tends to get missed out in the Western narrative. So one of the key things was that the US military took over a school in the center. And when a large demonstration turned up to protest and demand their school back, the Ameri the, and the, the protest turned violent, but the Americans shot 17 civilians, which is kind of the bit that we don't get in the story. Um, unlike Bloody Sunday, the circumstances of that shooting are contested, but what matters is the local narrative of brutal oppression. So that's the background context to when a group of resistance fighters ambushed a convoy, convoy of American mercenaries, and I think I can use that label, who were driving unarmored vehicles in the wrong part of town. What happened was the insurgents burnt their bodies and hung them from a bridge. And that then, and that, the images of that went right around the world, and particularly across um, a, you know, American breakfast TV. It caused huge public anger and the demand for revenge. And what was really important about that was that the US commander on the ground, Major General Conway, was saying, whoa, 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 you know, um, don't have an immediate military response. It's going to be counterproductive. And by the way, we're not ready. But after three days of pushback, the White House said, go anyway. Um, and the narrative that emerged from that battle was one of death and suffering of civilians. And one that was coming from local sources, and especially there was a single Al Jazeera reporter um, in the city reporting what was happening. And th those stories electrified the entire Middle East. It was the point at which resistance ceased to be you know, perceived as a few Ba'athist diehards still supporting Saddam and became a, a genuine prop, uh, proper resistance to brutal occupation in, in their narrative. Um, you can say that's the crystallization of the insurgency. Um, so it's hard to challenge that description of that being the point of change. So because after three days, the US military actually stopped attacking because the government they set up, the Iraqi government they constructed um, was about to collapse because of it. So, uh, I mean, that, if ever there's an example of, of, of why getting your narratives right in, in media, in, in, in urban warfare is important, that was it. I mean, you know, we, 10 years of, of, of counterinsurgency following it. Mm. You've just described the central role of urban battles in insurgencies. You don't think that the Australian government would be very reluctant to deploy the ADF for such a purpose again? Well, nobody wants to um, engage in urban war. But a couple of hypotheticals. If PNG just blew up and, uh, uh, and um, you know, there's widespread um, uh, insurgency or, or, or instability, would we just... Um, stand by and let it down. And, and more provocatively, if we were to get into a confrontation with a powerful state much further away, a pretty good way of deterring 
Australia from deploying much of the ADF is to fix it here by defending um, by defending against um, local attacks here. In other words, if if a foreign power wanted to stop us deploying more than one of our three brigades overseas, if they were running the odd raids around the perimeter of Australia, um, the, polit- the politics of it would be pretty clear. Um, however, the, the problem with scenarios, just the ones I've mentioned, is people disagree on their probability or their plausibility. Um, what we can much more usefully say is there are massive drivers pushing us towards urban conflict. The world's urbanising. The, the majority of the people in the planet live in urban areas now, and that's quite rap- expanding rapidly. Um, it just leaves less room for having fights that aren't urban. Um, and then conflict itself, because it happens between people, is happening in the cities. Um, and what's particularly relevant in the last few years, and if you've seen from the um, conflict in, uh, between the Azerbaijanis and the um, Armenians, um, it's only in urban areas where there's a reasonable degree of cover from overhead sensors and overhead attack. And just in the same way that machine guns and shells drove soldiers to dig below ground at the end of the 19th century and into World War I, um, I think it's pretty likely that mass precision munitions, you know, killer drones, are going to drive soldiers into urban areas because that's the one place where they might be very vulnerable. Um, and the point here is that while destruction and suffering has always been more concentrated in cities, it's now visible because both capture technology and distribution technology, and so in other words, the phones we're carrying around with us, um, and at the moment, social media is, is not really controllable. So messages, images get out. Um, and sort of moving into our study area, conventional media are generally broadly supportive of the military in conflict, you know, the ones on normally on their side. They stick with the index of not being too critical um, except when there are events that are so momentous they go past the editing process. So an urban warfare gives us just that because you get you know, images of children suffering and dying or you know, some awful disasters, and there are a lot of them. So um, those things are hugely emotive in, intrinsically, but people don't understand what they're seeing, so they make simplistic moral judgments, um, which means public opinion can then be swayed in either direction towards more aggressive or less aggressive um, policies. Um, using the example of Fallujah I mentioned just now, it can, it can go in the, in the, in the, very much in the wrong way. So if the key issue is that if military fight in urban areas without the media understanding what's going on and without the military having any serious ability to influence that narrative, then you'll get politicians changing policies in the middle of battle, which historically hasn't ever gone very well. So it sounds to me as if you're making a case for information operations. Can you tell us a little bit about how you developed the research question at the heart of the study that you undertook and the methodology that you chose? Well, um, I'm in, in strong agreement that we do need to uh, develop information operations capabilities, but there are some specific things that the military needs to do for, for um uh, in an urban context, but I'll come back to those. I think um, that, that that's on top of what we actually did. What we did was we looked at three pairs of urban battles where the same ground had been fought over twice. And that allowed some in-case, you know, cross-case comparison and in-case comparison. So the first and second battles of Grozny in, in Chechnya, the first and second battles of Fallujah uh, in Iraq, and two incursions into Gaza. And what we then did was we went to look to, uh, print newspaper reports from four different countries, two different newspapers in each uh, with relatively different 
political standpoints. And then we looked at what they were saying, what was reported or was not reported, and then how events were framed, meaning what was the dominant presentation of the story. And then we looked even behind that, at the rhetorical depictions. Um, that's the terms that are actually used to describe what, what occurred. Um, now, importantly, these battles were long enough ago that we got a reasonably good historical understanding of what actually happened from the military records. So we're able to make observations comparing the, um, you know, what, the command, what, what was actually going on with what the commanders were reporting to the media, what the media then recorded. And, and the, uh, for example, we saw quite a lot of exa uh, cases of commanders making statements to the, to the media that they were making progress when clearly that's not true um, and wasn't true at the time. But then there's, there's nothing very novel there. The um, Duke of Wellington very famously said something like, to try and tell the history of a battle, you might as well try and tell the history of a ball. Um, now, that remark's a bit wasted on most people if they haven't read Jane Austen and don't understand the intrigue of um, the Georgian era. But the serious point he was making is that social incentives you know, basically encourage people to fib or misrepresent events. Um, in other words, what we now call spin is is always been part of the reporting of battle. Quite apart from the fact that you can genuinely have you know different perspectives on on a single event. Now, as a scholar of war books, I'm interested in some of these historical dimensions that you mentioned. Could you tell us a bit more about them? Um, well, uh, to be clear, um, political distortion and exploitation of emerging media is nothing new. There's a direct relationship between the invention of the Gutenberg, the printing press, and the instability that led to the religious wars all across Europe. Um, now, contemporary social media uh, operates in very different and probably more powerful ways because of its immediate reach and because its interactions are different from what takes place in the real world. I mean, cognitively, the way we interact with our phones is different to the way we interact with people. But um, to understand that stuff, which is kind of the new cutting edge of, of opinion forming, we need to understand, sort of re recap and look at what we already know. So what we did was go back and look at the psychology of opinion forming, um, things like what a train of thought really is, how you can actually strongly shape how someone will think about a topic by the choice of words you use to introduce it. That's the idea of framing, as well as the um, perhaps even bigger idea of how media is central to a agenda setting. So it decides, um, it might not be able to decide what you, th what you think about a topic entirely, but it'll certainly be able to choose what you decide to think about. Um, we looked at print media because it's much more manageable and a really solid place to start examining the problem. Um, so we began by distilling the literature, examining the relationship between the military and the mainstream uh, media, and that's where we discovered that, yeah, well, They've always been in tension because on the one hand, journalists want stories and the military wants secrecy. But equally, media have always been incredibly important for militaries. I know while they've always resisted the, the uh, publicity, it's done them good. So the, the Times reporter describing the awful care, medical care in the Crimean War was what actually led to improved logistics and healthcare in the British Army. And, and it was Murdoch, and we're talking several generations back, Murdoch's smuggled report on conditions at Gallipoli that eventually led to the, the, the um, decision to withdraw. So there's nothing new here. Um, anyway, having given our readers of the report a, a background in the history, we then looked at um, how journalism interacted with the military, especially in the um, Australian military since the Vietnam War. Mm. 
Did you look at the reporting of the Australian Special Forces involvement in Afghanistan at all? Um, yeah, that's an interesting area. Uh, yes and no. So this was done you know, four or five years ago. And, um, we made some tangential observations about the evident and potential problems that failure to engage the media might involve. But within it, that was actually it. What we did do was point out the example of how the New Zealand government's inept handling of some critical reporting about the New Zealand Special Air Service backfired um, quite substantially. So we were kind of using a, a representative case of something else rather than get, getting into the, well, obviously the quite contemporary, quite sensitive area of the IGDF inquiry. Um, that's actually the part of our report that caused most difficulty in, and basically has been at the heart of why it hasn't been published until relatively recently. Not because of the conclusions we drew about, we drew about urban warfare, but rather our synopsis of the developing relationship between the ADF and Australian journalists, or as I'll discuss, the journalist response to that response to that synopsis. Um, so, given that this research was partially funded by the army, we were very careful to um, sketch the challenges using the words of military members themselves and the analysis of media scholars, rather than you know anything that might be our opinion. But um, what we spelt out very clearly is whatever the lack of media transparency from the ADF might or might not be, and there's a debate about the problem as we'll move to, um, what we're seeing here is the military properly responding to the directions of the minister. In our system, the minister is absolutely entitled to direct the organisation to work for him you know, as, as they see fit. So if Minister Dutton has given directions about ADF media engagement, then that is a political question which is appropriate to him. And therefore, it's really unjust to uh, criticise senior officers for conforming to that. So in that sense, this whole piece of work sits in the political realm because we're saying, hey, guys, that's a problem. Um, so it turns out that uh, um, it wasn't our analysis that was uncomfortable. It was our literature review because we were summarising the existing knowledge. And um, what was sitting at the front end was verging on the, um, the controversial. But what really became problematic wasn't what it says because the way journalists uh, who we were testing and um, reacted to it. And I need to explain that. So we wrote our literature and then we analysed the newspaper reports of the battle and we drew a number of interesting conclusions about urban warfare, which I'll come to in a minute. But the interesting thing, that what happened, that when we took it to journalists to validate what we'd found, which was, which was part of our research design, because we'd right at the beginning said, well, we'll change, we're going to share our findings with a small anonymous group of military officers and a small anonymous group of journalists to make sure, you know, we're, we're on track and see what we come. Um, and we sent a draft report out with questionnaire. Um, and what we got back from journalists really surprised us. It was more or less like this, but they say, yeah, 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 your, your findings about urban warfare are, re uh, are, are really interesting. But let me tell you, you don't understand the ADF media relationship. And there's a really big problem here. And then they, then they started to give really, really critical accounts. Now, that's problematic for us as from a researcher point of view, because we were getting information on the basis of an anonymity and we got critical claims that we couldn't test um, against and validate. Um, and there's an ethical problem there because um, yeah, do we leave it all out? But we found we've discovered something new that might be of value. Fortunately, one of our journalists gave us a way out. So um, his response to 
to the questionnaire was a really solid five or six pages of prose, which I started to analyse and was going to pull the stuff out. And I went, oh, this is actually an important document in its own right. So I, um, I contacted him and said, can I just publish it as it is? Um, and he said yes. Uh, and the journalist is Hugh Remington. Um, and his discussion of the problem of media and urban warfare sits right there in its own right. Uh, and I think it's a really important contribution to this, to this piece of research. Just, just, just read it. It's got a sta- it stands alone. Um, but I say, that's, that was the diff- ethical difficulty. Should we completely remove the feedback from the Delphi groups because of the sensitivities of, of um, criticising the ADF or is there an obligation to tell truth to power and say that the emperor's naked? Um, you know, but then you have a, a story that no one wants to hear because you've attached this criticism of the ADF there and therefore the important things you might be saying about urban warfare aren't going to get discussed. I mean, it's kind of it's a, a dilemma. Um, so that was where, so what we've got here is a compromise. So over a period of a number of years, it went backwards and forwards and I've gradually stripped out all the content that might be really subjective or, or even a little bit subjective, but I've left the essential words of others, which by the way, includes the fairly critical words of the current chief of the army and looked for a publisher. And, and you know, I was absolutely delighted when the European Society for Military Ethics, um, you know, decided to publish it. And many thanks to Ted von Bader from that organisation. That sounds to me as if your listeners can go and find that piece of writing if they want. You've mentioned that you've learned important things about media and urban war from your data. Can you tell us a bit more about those? Yeah, look, I think there are probably five really valuable insights. Um, and what we just mentioned is only one of them. Uh, and just to, well, I'll just summarise these first before I go into them. The first one is that reporting distorts urban operations. The next is that that whole idea, the media idea of indexing is likely to have blame for what goes wrong shifted onto militaries. There's the problem with the military-media relationship we just touched on. Um, the fact that the media is generally biased to, uh, towards the military is actually a problem and it's, it's a vulnerability. And this idea I've touched on before of, of reporting of urban events has a volatility. So let's explain those ideas. Um, we saw that during urban operations, much more than in other sorts of operations, there was really clear evidence of enormous pressure and unrealistic um, expectations that were placed on military leaders by politicians and the media. Um, and we then saw that that reports what, um, shapes what commanders do. Um, and the thing I mentioned before of commanders surprisingly frequently making, frequently making dubious claims of... of um, progress and success. Another thing that really surprised us was there's demands for truces and ceasefires, you know, which then get broken and, and they get, go back to fighting. But there's this pattern in recent war, which, which is um, not, doesn't, isn't reflected in training or behaviour, but, but it does seem to be there. And that was quite a surprising finding, um, usually prompted by international political pressure. We also saw that reporting was indexed. That means that the spectrum of debate was limited and, and Chomsky and a whole lot of media theorists have been pointing out this, this, this idea for a long while. Um, so that's not surprising. But what matters about that is journalists were much more likely and felt much freer to criticise the operational and the military rather than the political issues. In other words, you know, for the American press, it wasn't viable to, to, change, to challenge the fact that the um, American army had been sent to invade Iraq, 
but we can have a good go at the um, the army for stuffing up for Ludra or whatever. In fact, they weren't that. But I mean, that the, the critique moves into the lower space um, because it's safer for the for the um, the editors and the, and the journalists themselves. So what that means is that the military leaders get blamed for perceived failures to achieve tactical outcomes rather than the politicians who gave them the directions and sent them there in the first place. Mm. Uh, I think it's kind of a rip, but, you know, but um, so, you know, the military really need to be aware of that issue. Um, and the other thing is that because the public debate is pulled away from the political, which is where the adversary is operating, because they want to, you know, in the case of an insurgency, you want you to or, or the public back at home to give up and the army to the invading army to go away. Um, it pulls the discussion down into tactical critique. The um, what the adversary is saying up in the higher strategic level may not may remain uncountered because we're all we're all complaining down at the lower level. Um, and there's always been tension between journalist desire for story and the soldier's desire for for um, operational security, but. Current technologies make this worse because it literally happens in real time, you know, pictures mm -hmm. of what's going on. Um, and at least as bad is that media has now shifted to – media reporting has shifted to sound grab. So because it can be – because short little things can be grabbed and stuck on the, new, on the evening news, um, politicians have – Increasing stakes and, and, and well, you know, for good reason. They want to control military messaging. Um, another problem is that there's a shrinking pool of journalists because of the changes in the media. Um, uh, that shrinking pool doesn't have many people who um, are, have a, a long experience or good deep understanding of the military, and they're then constrained by a smaller group of media outlets um, with much tighter guidance. So, so sit, you're sitting within a frustrated group of journalists. Um, uh, they're, looking for, they're looking for a target and the ADF provide them one. Um, and I think one of the worrying things that we, we discovered was that some of the journalists we spoke to said that um, this process has co-opted senior officers into the political realm. Um, and we're quite explicit and said, you know, certain senior officers whose figures have appeared on posters, um, uh, are regarded as being uh, compromised and, and untrustworthy as a consequence. That's really, that's really alarming. And I mean, we're all aware of the discussion around General Fruin at the moment being mm -hmm. used as a, you know, and broadly we say it's a great thing that he's doing, but what we're saying is, well, just think about what the implications of this are if, if, the, if journalists consider he, he is now politically compromised because of what he's been doing. Um, I think another thing I said, the, um, the media research, lots of it shows positive bias in, in journalism during, in conflict. So you've got a situation where the national press um, uh, tend to be supportive of their own force. I mean, they, you know, the, the, the infamous um, front head, headline of the sun in 1982, gotcha when the Belgrano was sunk. I mean, I mean, that that's actually quite normal for domestic press to support the troops. Now, that looks like, or it sounds like, oh, that's good, that'll help the military. Actually, it doesn't, because what it allows to happen is you get a sanitised... You know, the journalists report what they're fed, um, uh, and they get a sanitised representation of, of, of battle and a high expectation of success from what's being said by the military and the politicians early in the fight. That picture is then really fragile, 
um, so if you get something that contradicts the narrative, and particularly the narrative is, oh, we're all, we're all going to go and do this very surgically and we'll be very careful and we won't hurt any civilians. And then it goes the other way because urban conflict does. I mean, it, unless, unless the population have been evacuated, there will be lots of civilian casualties and they're visible. And then you get this emotion-driven um, event-type event reporting that just pushes straight through. Um, I mean, I, and back in... 91, when the Al-Furdos uh, underground, the Iraqi underground shelter was, was bombed and you know, f several hundred civilians were killed. I mean, that, ju that just shifted the narrative around that war very rapidly. Um, so, uh, what, so either that comes through the conventional reporting or social media, you get a different story comes out and you get these the unpredictable public responses I mentioned from before. Um, and then when you get an angry public response, politicians either get angry themselves or they think they have to respond in you know, this idea of presumed influence. Um, and that shifts you towards sudden changes of policy. And that can go either way. So you can, you can have increased aggression, which was the case in Fallujah, or if you go back to the 90s and Black Hawk Down, um, when the world perception is after losing a bunch of tr troops in Somalia, the Americans withdrew from their, their raid there. Um, so, it, it, yeah, media matters. You know, the, the reporting, the narrative matters in this sort of a battle. Mm. Now, from your findings, what would you say are your big recommendations going into the future? And what do we need to prepare? Uh, well, um, I think you know, we, we need, we're, we're, we're ethically and morally obliged to prepare um, uh, our soldiers as best we can. Um, yeah, uh, we've made we got some some concrete um, recommendations. Uh, after we'd synthesised ourselves and then discussed it with the, with the expert groups, we came up with six recommendations. First of all, we need to have the means to hide our own forces on the urban battlefield to make them less vulnerable to both kinetic and informational attacks. So that so that's things like using smoke obscurance and literally hiding them on the battlefield. Um, the next thing we need is um, to build public and media understanding of the problems of media of, of urban conflict, the nature, yeah, how ugly it is, and therefore to manage expectations that come out of it. The third thing we think we need is, is for own forces to be able to generate a compelling media um, a series of media products and generate their own um, capacity to engage in the battle of narratives. Um, the military also need a solid, really well validated doctrine. You know, the, how are we going to do this fight? So that it's which is un, which is familiar to them and also familiar to the political leaders, so that it's resistant to sudden change um, in a crisis. We need military capabilities that reduce our own casualties and because that reduces the imperatives to suddenly rely on firepower to avoid having further military casualties. Um, and last but not at all least, um, we need a major effort to improve the military media relations um, and but ideally find ways of integrating journalists into the military so that they can also provide levels of oversight and assurance of behaviour. And I mean, recent events make that very relevant. Look, very fortunately, we were able to take those recommendations and run them past a, 
a case study of the Battle of Marawi. And I'm fairly reassured that they all align with the practices developed or lessons learned from that battle. Um, and after, really above all, uh, General Batista, who was in command at the time, emphasised what he said was the soft power battle was at least half of the, st the struggle. If they hadn't won that battle, then... The Battle of the Narratives. Yeah, the Battle of the Narratives. Exactly, yeah. They hadn't won the Battle of the Narrative on Mindanao at the battle, during the Battle of Marawi. Um, they would probably be still fighting a really vicious large-scale insurgency right now. So the point is um, the media in urban war are increasingly going to affect the strategic outcome and armies have to respond to that. Thank you, Charles. That has given us a lot to think about. Where should our listeners look if they'd like more information? Can you point us anywhere? Well, I can put some links on the this page if that's if it's possible to do that. Is there a title for your book that's come out? Um, well, th this this is published as a um, oh sorry what uh, it's a it's a big occasional paper. It's mm -hmm. technically an occasional paper on the so if you go to the um, European Society for Military Ethics website and you look for um, occasional papers, there are three there, um, and ours is number three. Uh, but I'll put a link up. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Charles, for joining us today and thanks to our audience for your interest. Bye-bye.